This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform, developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's being authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Welcome back to another series, really. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you're tuned into our board slash our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. Now, we do know that OITEs are coming up shortly, so we hope that you all are enjoying these episodes. We will try to release them a little bit more frequently in the next couple of weeks. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. If you have not already, check out our Nailed It podcast companion book that literally has all the notes that goes along with everything that we talk about here. So a great way to study would be to listen to an episode and then go and reinforce your memory or whatever you've learned by checking it out in a book. You can write some notes. Let us know how you like those. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into some hand. We're going to talk about some hand anatomy and uh, let's get into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode, I guess another series uh, of the Nailed It Ortho OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Woolwine. And now we've moved to the land of uh, wrist and hand. It's, it's about time, man. We're, we're getting closer to the end. Closer to the end. We've been saying that for a long time, but we are finally getting there. <laughs> I still remember at the beginning, we were like, yeah, you know, it should take about six months or so. We'll get through all orthopedics. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was like two years. Yeah, and then and then reality hits you, and you're like, actually, that's like I I keep going back on that, and I'm like, yeah, we did say that we could get through this stuff pretty quickly, but then you think about it, and you're like, there's no way I could cover an entire specialty of medicine in a review course in six months from scratch, like like the the Miller review courses and these other like ABOS review courses, like they've been around for years and years, and they've like hone their skills and their teaching and all of that stuff. So I think we're doing all right. We're doing all right. With the recent OITs, like there are a bunch of stuff that like we covered and I was doing questions like, yeah, I got this. And it's funny because I look at the exam results and I did like significantly poor in all of the sections we have not covered yet versus <laughs> the ones we have. Yeah. Well, we'll get that score up in what you got. Yeah, it's six months until ABOS. So. Yeah, man. Boards. They're coming. Yeah, yeah he'll, uh, he'll be fine. Well, uh, let's go ahead and hop into, I guess, some hand and wrist. And uh, we'll just start off with some, I guess, just basic anatomy questions and just kind of go through, like, I guess, so what are some of the compartments of the forearm? If we're kind of going in the forearm, then we'll talk some hand stuff. Yeah, so compartments of the forearm. And this is important really more for like, uh, for like trauma because of the compartment syndrome. You have to make sure that you're releasing all of this stuff. So there's the dorsal, volar, and mobile wad are the main compartments of the forearm. And then both the dorsal and volar have superficial and deep compartments. It's They probably aren't going to test you necessarily on the individual muscle bellies that make up each one, but it's still good to go through this and, and look up a, a cross-sectional picture in netters or cadaver dissection and see exactly where the, the flexor muscles are in relation to one another and which one 
superficialis or deep is profundus is like more superficial, more deep. And it kind of gives you an idea of because of their name, but it's a good thing to just kind of review before any hand or forearm case and any test. And then as it enters the kind of wrist, hand and fingers, What's the anatomy of the extensor tendons at that point? Yeah, and I remember this stuff was always so confusing to me. But anyway, so if we're looking at the extensor tendons, as they go through the wrist and like enter the hand, at the proximal phalanx or P1, the extensor tendons trifurcate. So you have a central portion that inserts at the dorsal base of the middle phalanx or P2, and that's what you refer to as your central slip. And then you have two lateral slips, you know, so again, it trifurcates, so you have the one central tendon then you have your two lateral slips that end up being joined with the oblique fibers of the extensor hood from the interossei and the lumbrical muscles. And these form your lateral bands. So your lateral bands form your terminal tendon and they insert at the dorsal base of the distal phalanx or P3. So again, you have your central slip inserting at base of P2. Then you have your two lateral slits, which forms your lateral bands, which inserts at the base of your distal phalanx to uh, extend that DIP joint. You know, there's, there's so many bands in the hand, man. And so what is the function of the sagittal bands? Yeah. So the sagittal bands, they are the kind of lateralizing stabilizers at the metacarpal phalangeal joint. And you'll see the sagittal band ruptures in people who are like boxers, get it, or people who in a drunken stupor decide to punch a wall or or get angry or whatever and um, so what they do is they stabilize the extensor tendon at the dorsal mcp joint and they originate from the mcp volar plate and base of p1 and wrap laterally or i guess radially and ulnarly around to the dorsal aspect and they keep the extensor tendon centralized over the MCP joint, where if you do have one ruptured, the nice part is it's easily to detect which one would be ruptured because the extensor tendon will fall to the contralateral side. So like I ruptured at one point, it's now healed, but my middle finger on my left hand and the I ruptured the radial one. And every time I would bend my finger at the MCP, the extensor tendon would slip over to the lateral aspect of the, or over to the ulnar aspect of the MCP joint. But now mm-hmm. it's, it has since been dealt with and now it's, it moves centrally. So, so yeah, whatever side the tendon falls on when they bend their hand or, or flex their hand, that's the contralateral one that's uh, that's ruptured. And then there's other ligaments that help stabilize those lateral bands that you were talking about in the phalanx. What ligaments help stabilize the lateral bands to prevent volar subluxation? Yeah, so this is going to be your triangular ligament. And I'm not going to lie, I thought all, all this stuff was made up. And then we were doing a hand case the other day and I could actually see the triangular ligament fibers. And I was like, oh, this is actually real stuff. But so the triangular ligament going to be the things that help stabilize the lateral bands to help prevent against volar subluxation, you know? So if you have injury to the triangular ligament, and we'll talk about it again a little bit later, and it stays chronic, that can kind of lead you to that boutonniere's, I'm sorry, the uh, swan neck deformity. Now, what ligaments help to stabilize the lateral bands to help prevent against dorsal subluxation? These are going to be the uh, transverse retinacular ligaments. And I mean, just going on on ortho bullets or whatever, and you look through the kind of diagrams that they have, 
of these ligaments, you'll see and you're like, holy cow, the, the finger looks like a like a spider web because of all of these different bands and ligaments and, and connecting pieces. And so the transverse retinacular ligaments, which are located right pretty much right at the junction or at the joint between P1 and P2 of the digits. And they are, yeah, they're going to help prevent that volar subluxation or excuse me, prevent the dorsal subluxation because the volar subluxation is the triangular ligament. So the thing that we, I think, are more commonly tested and uh, more commonly pimped on for sure are the pulleys. And so what are the function of the pulleys and kind of where are they located? Yeah. So these pulleys, they kind of just help to maximize like efficiency of joint rotation and force transmission. They help to prevent against both stringing of the fingers. And so what you have are five annular pulleys, and then you have three cruciform pulleys. And the annular pulleys are, uh, you know, those are the A pulleys. So those are like A1, A3, and A5. And those are going to be over the palmar surfaces of the metacarpal phalangeal joint, the PIP joint, and the DIP joint. So a lot of times with like trigger finger, you go and you're talking about releasing the A1 pulley. So again, that's a word. This is the A1 is going to be over the MCP joint. So any odd number is going to be over the joint. Then you have A2 and A4, which lie over P1 or the proximal phalanx and P2, the uh, the middle phalanx. And biomechanically, both of these are the most important pulleys because, again, these help prevent against like bowstringing and make sure that your tendons function in an efficient manner. So, again, the odd numbers are going to be over the joints. The even numbers are going to be over the phalanx themselves. And A2 and A4 are uh, the most important biomechanically. You know, what compromises the pulley system of the thumb? We know the thumb is a little bit different than all of the other fingers because you don't have like a DIP and PIP joint. You just have an interphalangeal joint. The thumb is mainly just three separate pulleys. There's A1, oblique, and then A2. There's no kind of cruciform uh, pulleys. And so the A1 is located at the MCP joint uh, volar aspect because we're talking about the flexor pulleys. The oblique is over the kind of proximal phalanx, and it really is a kind of a continuation of that adductor pollicis muscle. And then A2 is at the interphalangeal joint. And so the A1 and the oblique pulley are the most important biomechanically because they will prevent that bowstringing and the difficult part about a thumb and this is more for the pediatric people is whenever you need to do a thumb trigger release you are still releasing the a1 pulley even though it's important biomechanically speaking for bowstringing but the radial digital nerve kind of crosses over the thumb and goes to the radial side of the thumb right over top of where that pulley is so right at that mcp so, so that's the main structure you have to look out for that is a probably one of the more testable topics with the pulley systems that you'll see on abos and oite going from the extensor side now to the flexor side for the tendons does the fds or the fdp bifurcate this episode is sponsored by the american academy of orthopedic surgeons if you're an orthopedic resident it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. ROCK is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.com. 
www.ohiomedicalschool.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Yeah, so it's going to be the FDS or the flexor digitorum superficialis. The FDP just attaches to the base of the distal phalanx or P3. Again, FDS is the one that bifurcates, FDP does not. And since we're talking about bifurcation of the FDS, where does it bifurcate and kind of what's this, what's this course to its insertion, kind of like how we're talking about the extensor tendons, what about with, with the FDS? So the FDS bifurcates laterally and dorsally at the level of the A1 pulley, and then it divides into, once again, medial and lateral slips. And so these slips cross dorsal to FDP, and then they rejoin as the camper's chiasm at distal P1 and the PIP volar plate, and then the lateral slips, or the medial slips cross dorsal, and then the lateral slips insert at the base of P2, while FDP continues all the way through, just like you said, and attaches to the base of P3. So FDP is what allows the DIP joints to flex, and then the FDS is responsible mostly for the MCP and the PIP joints because of how it bifurcates and goes around the FTP and allows the FTP to continue along as one solid tendon all the way to P3. And then uh, what's the vascular supply for the flexor tendons? Yeah, I think I remember seeing this question. I know I did it at some point, but it has a direct vascular supply via the venicular system. So they kind of have this this like network of, of vessels that help supply the flexor tendons. And then in the areas where they are a little bit more watershed, they have synovial diffusion for those avascular zones via a caniculi system. So again, they have a direct vascular supply via the venicular system. And then around the avascular zones, it depends on synovial diffusion via caniculi system in order to kind of supply these tendons with their blood supply. Now, uh, continuing in with more hand anatomy, which, which we all love, what is the function of the dorsal interossei muscles? The dorsal interossei, they are responsible for abducting the digit and flexing at the MCP because the uh, the interossei originate from the metacarpals and they insert on P1. And so they are responsible for abduction of the digit and flexing at the MCP, and they are considered a bipinnate muscle, um, where I think the volar interossei are unipinnate muscles, but basically it's a superficial muscle, becomes the medial tendon and attaches at the proximal phalanx, and then the deep portion passes over the sagittal hood and becomes the lateral tendon and inserts on the transverse fibers of the extensor aponeurosis to help flex the MCP because they, the deep muscle will pass volar to the center of rotation for the MCP so that that's why they flex the MCP as well. And then uh, we know that there's the dorsal interossei. What about the function of the volar interossei? Yeah, so these are also going to flex the MCP joint and these are going to adduct the, the ring and middle fingers. You know, it's just one muscle and they insert into the extensor apparatus, which, you know, we kind of talked about a little bit earlier about that kind of whole extensor hood and the lateral slopes being joined with the lumbricals and some of the interossei contributions. 
And so this is one of those contributions from the interosseae. So again, the fuller interosseae muscles are going to flex to MCP joint and adduct the index ring and the middle finger. Again, it's just one muscle and it inserts into the extensor apparatus. Now, what is the function of the lumbrical muscles? Yeah, the lumbrical muscles are a little bit different than the interosseae because they, the interosseae, they originate on the metacarpals itself, but the lumbricals actually originate from the FDP tendon itself. And their function is to extend the DIP and PIP joints. So they originate from the FDP tendon and they insert on the radial lateral band of the extensor apparatus and they pass deep to the transverse intermetacarpal ligament which is as it says intermetacarpal and the interossei pass dorsal to this ligament so that's how you kind of differentiate the two is one their insertion but where they pass in relation to the transverse intermetacarpal ligament and as the lumbricals pass deep or has a insert on the radial lateral band of the extensor apparatus, that's going to help pull the DIP and PIP into extension. And doing a little bit of a quick blurb on wrist arthroscopy, <laughs> what are the wrist portals named in relation to? Yeah, so they're going to be in relation to the extensor compartments, right? So you have like, you know, your first, second, third, fourth, fifth extensor compartments. And so they're going to be named in relation to those. So for example, the four five portal is going to be between the fourth and the fifth compartments, extensor compartments of the, the wrist. And I should put a question in here discussing what the extensor compartments of the wrist are. Uh, let me see if I can pull them up really quick and, and just quickly just, just touch base on them. I think it's probably, I guess, important to know, but again, it's, it's some level of baseline knowledge that you should just know. <laughs> yeah, how to tell yeah you that's kind of a, a sub-I thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just really quickly, your your first compartment is going to be your EPB and your APL. Your second compartment is going to be ECRB and ECRL. Third compartment is EPL. Fourth is EDC. Fifth is EDM. And sixth is ECU. During wrist arthroscopy, what are some structures that are going to be at risk when you're placing portals, you know, when you're we're trying to get access to the wrist. Obviously, we're talking about anatomy, but this is kind of what it all comes down to. And just uh, like with any other arthroscopy, there's always structures that you have to be cognizant of because you're not doing a big open dissection to visualize them and move them out of the way. So you have to know where these portals go and how to avoid trauma to certain structures. So the one, two portal, which is between obviously compartments one and two, you're at risk for the superficial branch of the radial nerve, just because that's right where that radial, the dorsal aspect of the radial nerve is going to cross over and innervate the dorsal aspect of the hand. And then also the radial artery uh, can be at risk in that uh, zone. And more specifically, the, oh gosh, the the portion of the artery that passes in the anatomic snuff box. That's, can't remember the exact branch of the radial artery at that point, if there is a specific branch, but that is kind of the main structure at risk there. And then as you go between portals three and four, which is really palpating Lister's tubercle, and then going about one centimeter distal to that, that's where the three, four portal is. Again, yeah, that's where the superficial branch of the radial nerve is going to pass dorsal in the hand and wrist and innervate the uh, superficial structures there. And then the uh, 6R portal, so over on the 6 dorsal compartment, but on the radial side, so it's radial to ECU, you can get the dorsal sensory branch of 
I believe it would be the ulnar nerve. And then 6U portal is the same thing, dorsal sensory branch of the ulnar nerve. But I let me just double check that. Yeah, yeah. I think I probably... <laughs> I might have messed that up there. Yeah. Uh, I'll look it up. I'll get, I'll come back to it if it's different. Oh, we are back on some hand and we hope that you enjoy listening to our first episode going over some hand anatomy. And uh, without further ado, we hope that you hit the subscribe button. We hope that you all have followed us on social media at Nailed It Ortho on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we will see you all next time.